1: You have indeed found No Persinium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. This week, we've got an incredible show for you touching on a range of projects from across the immersive spectrum Johnny Grant of Department Studios will be with us to talk about the newly announced Arkham Asylum, a fully realized immersive experience set inside one of the most notorious places in Gotham City, the home away from lair of Batman's rogues gallery. This show will debut in London next fall, and tickets are about to go on sale. Artist Johann Diedrich, creator of Dark Matters, an interactive web and VR experience that explores how the voices of black people are left out of voice recognition models, will be with us. As will Ross Typograph, creator of Eight Players, who joins us to talk about Sleepy Hollow, the production he created for Fever in Chicago that will soon be opening up a second location in Washington, D.C., We'll also have Abby Sun, the editor of Immerse. She'll be here talking about their fifth anniversary issue, new publishing initiatives, and how the nonfiction-focused publication approaches covering the metaverse. That, and the pick of the week, and headlines, but before we get to those, a double program note. This is the last full episode of the month. I'm taking my annual fall break starting this weekend. Long-term listeners know why. Uh, And the next regular episode of the podcast will be on November 5th. And I will tell you right now, it's shaping up to be a doozy knock on wood that the interviews that are supposed to happen that week happen and then I won't look a fool for saying that uh the review crew show is also going to be on hold uh that recording will happen next Wednesday live in our discord but the episode won't drop until November 2nd but there will be one more thing in the feed between now and then, a bonus episode for our Patreon backers that features an overtime section with Johan and additional bits from our interviews this week with Abby and Ross. All together, those make up pretty much almost a full podcast. This would be like a two-hour-long show if we had everything in it. Uh, so we we didn't do that. We cut a lot of stuff. Uh, this bonus is going to be a timed exclusive for backers but we will drop it into the main feed, at least for a little while. We, we can turn them on off uh, sometime after this weekend. So if you need your fix, it's going to be there. And now, headlines.
2: Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Prusenium, and here's what's in your immersive headlines for October 22nd. Facebook Connect, the yearly conference formerly known as Oculus Connect, is happening next Thursday on October 28th, Facebook's CEO Mark Zuckerberg is expected to talk about the company's upcoming name change, says The Verge. What the new moniker will be is still under wraps as of this recording, but industry experts are placing bets now around the terms Metaverse and Horizon. Registration for Facebook Connect is free. The event will be held entirely online. The results of research around live performance in virtual, augmented, and mixed reality including the Royal Shakespeare Company's Dream, are now available. Interested listeners can find a new series of talks called *Findings in the Future of Live Performance, which shares new learnings from the Audience of the Future project. Curated by Marshmallow Laser Feast, Manchester International Festival, and the Royal Shakespeare Company, this new site shares insights from the 15 research and development projects run between 2019 and 2021 by the creative partners of the Consortium. And it's all available at findingsinthefuture.live. Elsewhere in yet another reality, the New York Times picks up on the latest trend of live-action murder mystery role-playing games in China. These so-called scripted homicide events have become a new social club, a place where young people can arrive in costume, play a character, and attempt to solve mysteries together, with a heavy emphasis on well-written, emotionally compelling stories. Well, this burgeoning new industry is expected to generate more than $2 billion in revenue this year, according to the New York Times. And one writer quoted in the piece even reports making $31,000 on a single script alone. These have been your immersive headlines.
1: And it's probably going to be a big news week next week, but I'm not moving my vacation for anybody this year. I've earned it. Joining us now is Johan Diedrich, the New York City-based artist behind Dark Matters, an interactive web experience that dives into how voice assistants, like Alexa, regularly omit and misinterpret Black speech. Johan, thanks for joining us on the show today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here.
1: I'm absolutely fascinated by this topic for so many reasons. And fascinating sounds too bloodless, I want to say, but I'll leave it for now. But just before we dive into it, what is the Dark Matters Interactive Web Experience?
3: Yeah. So the Dark Matters Interactive Web Experience is a web experience that exposes the absence of black speech in speech data sets, similar to the ones used to train Voice interface systems like Siri, Alexa, and Google Home, and the racial bias that those systems produce in the world.
1: And how does it manifest online? Because like people hear web experience and they can think of like, oh, well, is it like you know a geocities? You know, and I'm old. So, uh, <laughs> how exactly does this emerge?
3: Sure. So the web experience begins by placing you in the seat of as a machine learning researcher or, a, you know, an AI researcher who's sifting through a data set, a data set of speech, uh, speech recordings. And so on this website, you are immersed inside of this three-dimensional environment that contains speech recordings that are rendered as three-dimensional spectrograms. And spectrograms are these visual representation of, Sound information, um, essentially um, frequency energy across time inside of speech uh, recordings becomes this visual information that can be used in various different ways and capacities to understand what's going on inside of a of a sound file. And so you basically get this th- this experience of diving into this data set um, it It becomes kind of three dimensional. Um, you get to see metadata associated with each one of the recordings, um, the age group of the person who recorded it, their self-described accent, and um, the actual caption for that recording as well. And as you move through this environment, it's um, the audio is also spatialized. So you, you get this really kind of immersive experience as if you were kind of floating through a data set, um, you know, as if you are like kind of in the bits, in the ones and zeros, so to speak, um, and as as a, a pretty close resemblance to what it would be like for someone to really come in contact with a data set and sift through it to figure out what's inside of it. The hook, I guess you would say, is that um, in this data set, in this data set in particular, but kind of broadly speaking with most speech data sets is that there is an absence of black speech. There actually isn't any, if at all, uh, speech data that was that's made by by black voices. And so inside of this experience, you also encounter this absence of black speech in the form of a black void. And this black void, in contrast to these three-dimensional spectrograms that I described earlier, which are, more static and fixed. This black void is dynamic. It's elastic. It's constantly morphing and changing and evolving. And um, the audio that's attached to this black, this black void is a stand in for the black speech that isn't there. And in which case it's a speculative sci-fi story that describes the um, a day in the life of a Black machine learning researcher who is working on a kind of voice interface system, much like Alexa, and kind of the dark comedy trials and tribulations of being a Black researcher working on a system that doesn't work for his own voice and speech. And as the story and the narrative kind of unfolds, you, um, you kind of get to insights as to you know why these systems don't work for black speech why black speech isn't present in the data sets and not to reveal too much but you get sort of this um this response to this situation by this researcher and others that are trying to remedy you know as best as we can we can say that um the situation
1: what led you to tackle this topic with this project in its specificity of using spatialized audio, making an interactive, navigable web interface that can also, uh, people should know, can also be experienced in VR uh, through through the web VR uh, access. Why approach this topic this way?
3: There are a few reasons. I think, you know, I'll start with one where This project is supported through a Mozilla Foundation Creative Media Award. Um, This past year, they um, awarded eight different artists and art groups funds to create works that dealt with racial bias in AI. And when I saw the call for this work, I was really kind of immediately uh, reminded of my own personal experience with interfacing with these these devices and these systems, and in particular, my family's experience in using these devices and, um, and their experience with it. My parents are Jamaican. They immigrated from Jamaica in the late or mid 80s, and um, they have a, a pretty heavily accented variation of English. And a few years ago, my parents got an Alexa in their homes, and I would notice this device really struggling to understand their common speech, you know, their, their their at-home speech, their casual speech. And thinking about racial bias in AI and thinking about these, these speech technologies, um, it also got me thinking a little bit about code switching.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: code switching is this phenomenon that um, many marginalized people in the United States um, deal with people who, who come from a, a background where there are maybe English is, well, it's not really an English to the second language thing, but it is a way in which, um, like class mobility is expressed through voice and through speech, where in one context, a group of people, a group of black people may speak in one particular way, use a very particular kind of vocabulary and, and cadence and, and utterances for that group and that community, but then when needing to interface with the outside world, the external world, and in this case, situations or contexts where they're, they could be easily profiled based on their on how they speak. And we can talk about situations like talking to a police officer or speaking to a judge or a lawyer, applying for a bank loan, giving a presentation, any kind of situation where, you know, a lot is at stake and maybe, you know, quote unquote, want to put your best foot forward, you'll, you'll have this phenomenon of code switching happening where, you know, a person may adopt a different kind of um, way of speech that, that, you know, allows them to, to, to self present in a way that's beneficial, or at least like not as detrimental in the other case. And so these two things are, were kind of sitting in my head and, I wanted to explore that thinking about you know we had this situation where black people in the US are code switching for white years what I was noticing was black people in America code switching now for AI years mm. and that thread between code switching for white years and AI years is what I started to pull at in the course of Producing this work and making this work, so that's that's really the origin story, or really kind of the the initial start of of, of the work from a you know from a, from a personal experience perspective. I think presenting the work in the way that it is right now, it really has to do a lot with you know placing someone in that position of what what is what would it be like to to go through speech data or a speech data set and realize that there's this absence inside of this data. Like we don't, we take data input or data sets as, as, as a given, you know, um, without much afterthought, but what's not there, what's not present in these data sets says a lot more about, um, about these data sets and can give reason as to when they're used, why they don't perform as well as we expect. And in this case, why they produce, a kind of racial bias.
1: I first became aware of some of these issues by seeing research come out of MIT around machine vision and mm-hmm. black faces and just sort of the way that the cam, the webcams, you know, the, the AI webcams couldn't detect an African-American face. They, they were, they were mm-hmm. face blind in your research into this, this whole realm. What have you found to be the key underlying causes of failing to account for black speech?
5: There are two
3: that come to mind in that I think, or, or you know, probably take the majority of that, uh, that space. One is a lack of black speech in these data sets. And these systems are really as good as the data that they're trained on and the way in which that. They output predictions or classifications are are only going to be able to um, come from the data in which that they're that they're trained with. So, without having enough black speech in these data sets, these systems are just never going to have been exposed to the kinds of um, you know speech patterns that black people use. Right. Um, in in order to properly recognize them, uh, the other. Cause that I think is 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 is, is quite um, difficult to pin down, and um, is really what I'm very interested in, in right now is is more from an algorithmic perspective. So um, in early 2020, there was a paper that came out from researchers at Stanford University, who you know did a, did a real systematic breakdown as to you know why these um, devices are. Or don't work as well for um, for black speech, and they identified for sure lack of data. But they also identified what they called, um, you know, uh, potential problems with the acoustic modeling. So so the actual algorithms that are used in these systems to to look at speech data and to pick out things like um, like phonemes or Uh, being well attuned to speech characteristics like prosody. um, These are things that historically have not been accounted for since the beginning of the development of speech recognition systems. And this is going back to the early 20th century. This is Alexander Bell, Bell Labs. This is um, DARPA. This is just all of these, all of these kind of early classic military Systems that were that were built and developed that have assumptions around speech and around speech characteristics that are important in 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 wanting to do this kind of classification work and and then um, they kind of throw away the rest. So my hypothesis, and I think it's it's really a hypothesis, is that these acoustic models and these algorithms are not attending to some. Qualities in black speech that I believe might be the missing link, or, or, or the reasons why they're not—they're not looking into it. So, in the case of prosody, which is defined as um, information in speech that is not localized to a specific sound segment, or information that does not change the identity of speech segments, and this is things like pitch, duration, energy, stress. Which anecdotally are things that I think Black speech is is a, a very core, very core element and component to Black speech. Um, they they say in, the, in in the literature our systems make quite limited or no use of prosody at present, which is you know some evidence or indication that there are perhaps characteristics or qualities of speech that are just not being attended to in these systems. And I think that you know that is. Possibly why they're not doing so well on black speech,
1: Johan. If you've got a, a a minute or two, I'd love to do some overtime with you. If if that's good yeah. for you, okay. For those who want to explore, and 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 from what I understand, Dark Matters is is currently accessible online, and it's just out there as a project for free. Uh, how can people find it?
3: Sure, they can go to. Uh, www.darkmatters.ml and um, as long as you can connect to that website um, headphones are highly recommended because of the spatialized audio that the site's using Um, yeah that's it just go to the website um, have some headphones if you can and um, there are instructions that show you how to navigate and that's all you really need to do
1: all right I encourage everyone to do exactly that and to uh, to to dig up uh, the overtime that we're going to get into. Johan, thank you so much uh, for joining thank us. Thank you so much. Today. Joining us now is Johnny Grant, the Chief Creative Officer of Department Studios, Inc., which has recently announced uh, that uh, they are part of the team doing Arkham Asylum in London, a full immersive show set in the infamous asylum that uh, houses Batman's rogues gallery. So uh, anyone who listens to the show knows how much of a nerd I am knows that I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, may not know that I'm a giant Batman nerd, and I've been so excited that this has been brewing. And Johnny, this has been brewing for some time now, right?
6: Talk about labor of love, No, uh, The creative team Myriad, uh, which is Simon, Georgia, and David, came to me with the bare bones of this project about seven years ago. So it's it's a little bit more than brewed. If this was a cup of tea, it would be dark black with tannin floating all over the top and oily stuff. But I like it in Gotham.
1: Sorry, um, <laughs> I won't do that again. I swear. Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the blackest black, is what you're telling me? No, um,
6: uh, it's su- suitably for for uh for the for the Caped Crusader. Yes,
1: people here, Arkham Asylum. The Imagination Runs Wild, what is this, of what you can tell us, because tickets are going on sale not too long from now, what is this going to
6: be? Well, look, firstly, uh, you are clearly an acolyte, and uh, Arkham Asylum immediately rings bells in your head. But I'm worried that uh, 90% of the public out there will go, Arkham Asylum, what's that? Um, Mm -hmm. So I just thought it was maybe worth just framing this a little bit, which is, This is a rather famous piece of Gotham real estate created in a sort of seminal graphic novel 1989 by uh, Grant Morrison and Dave McKean, and uh, it's had many lives since then. Probably most famously and most notoriously. In 2009, when it became the first of Rocksteady Games' big, sort of long-term gaming franchise based upon the Arkham world, so um, that's the world we're playing in. It's Batman. It's an asylum, and it's going to be pretty cool.
1: So, from a from a from an immersive and from a theater, and even I guess a little bit from a normy uh, perspective. If if you're going to this, are are you is this gonna be, you know, kind of like a, a punch drunk thing? You're gonna be wandering around the asylum and discovering stuff, which is also a little bit like it is in the Rocksteady games, yeah. or is this going to be something that's a little more of a guided experience? Or or are, are we are are we still in exploration mode at this point?
6: No, absolutely not. We're we're in full we know what this is because we've been working on it for more than half a decade mode. Um, It's probably easiest explained by giving you a little insight into the wider team here. Mm. So at the helm of this creatively is, is director Simon Evans and Georgia and David. These three have been, doing immersive shows for 10 years. They were key key uh, creative team for Secret Cinema for many of, in my opinion, their greatest shows, including Shawshank Redemption, which really set the scene for uh, this show insofar as it's set in a... In an institution, uh, the audience member came in, they really transformed in, but they were being themselves in the space. And that's really crucial for us in the immersive world. We don't like asking our audience to be anyone other than themselves find it's very clunky if you start to say hey guys why don't you be a uh, you know why, why don't you suddenly pretend to be a vampire or why don't you that's when it gets all very icky indeed be yourself come in react real time to what's happening around you and the actors are going to be doing the same so yes there are actors yes and, and at the heart of this the writers the directors and then the broader team the broader team is really west end glitterati they've got more awards on their shelves than they have shelf space for Uh, our versions of the tony awards or whatever those the 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 u.s equivalents are these guys have have been there one more and actually lots of them have have, have come over to the u.s and, and won the same awards here too that's quite unusual in the immersive space you know the immersive space generally has a sort of Trenchant following both of fans and audience, but also of the people who create it. And we've very specifically stepped outside of that rather small pool and said, who are the best of the best in stage design, in lighting design? So building that creative team out is a crucial part of giving this a unique identity in the immersive space. Layer onto that, the fact that this project has an innovation director, Nick, who's come in with oodles of experience. He actually helped launch one of the Arkham computer games many moons ago and brings a lot of this experience through. And his remit is to help us layer in, in very stealthy and unclunky and seamless manner, lots of technology through the experience, which I I don't want to give away too much. But it's going to be a, a very exciting layer that not just enables a gamification of the experience, but really drives our audience to enjoy it before, after the experience, and come back and do it again in a different guise. I'm being pretty cryptic about that because I'm desperately trying not to give away too yeah. much detail. Stage.
1: Yeah. Well, I forgive you for not spilling all the beans but of course when it comes to batman things are supposed to be a mystery anyway so it's all it's all fair it's all fair and love in gotham war um this is without a doubt batman is one of the largest you know pieces of what hollywood loves to call intellectual property it is iconic when i first knew this was happening uh you know i was i was flabbergasted that we are you know so kind of you know early in this immersive renaissance and we already have a big big star wars project and now a big big batman project like it's a lot of faith on the part of these giant ip holders that that they're exploring this space with this mm-hmm. uh, and, and we got get it right yeah yeah that, it, it's a lot of pressure cuz like the, the yeah. you know, the, the people who own it, the fans who who in a, in a sense own it, and inviting them into a world that people have been imagining over and over again in in so many different forms. Because there are so many different in- incarnations. You're right of, of Arkham at this point, from that classic GN all the way through the video games and in the cartoon. Like people have a lot of expectations. How how is the team approaching? that aspect of all this all that all those
6: expectations yeah i mean listen in london i would say we have a very acute sense that we are carrying the torch and have been carrying the torch for many years for a a, a nascent industry what i love in london is that we do a lot of intel sharing you know i'm i'm good friends with many of the producers of other shows. In classic theatre world, they would be looking over their shoulder, calling it competition. We don't work like that. We're all very much of the mind that every great example of immersive in the marketplace helps us all long term to build a bigger and bigger and bigger audience who just want to go. They've seen that show and they loved it. So they're going to go to this one as well because they loved it. If they go to that show and they thought it was rubbish, We're not going to go to another immersive show. So it's crucial, actually, that that we're all working together. So, yeah, there's pressure. And there's pressure that the moment you pull out out the the Batman franchise, there is, in my mind, it's the coolest franchise in the world. It's effortlessly cool, and it's been reinvented time and time again by some of the greatest creative minds in the world. Be that Tim Burton, be that Christopher Nolan, be that Jack Nicholson, be that etc. We've we've seen these characters brought to life in different ways, and now it's our go. So yes, that does come with a lot of responsibility. But just going back to our creative team here, these are guys who have also created a lot of award winning theatre. And Simon, indeed, during the pandemic, decided to turn his hand to television and wrote, directed and indeed starred in two BBC series called Staged. They're great writers and it's crucial for us at the heart of this piece is a great piece of art, first and foremost. Where do we start with this story? How do we examine these characters, the arcs? they play again not going to go into too much here but that is our starting point this is not a spectacle it would be spectacular but that is not its primary function it's very much a storytelling challenge to us We want to make sure that our audience have come through this experience now at the other side and have had a very, very, very satisfying experience. And and that's a satisfying experience within a world that they love deeply, passionately.
1: Well, Johnny, I have a grin that would make uh, the Joker nervous right about now. (laughs) Johnny Grant, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week and giving us a little peek at what's going on with Arkham Asylum setting the stage, and I know we're going to have you back uh, when there's even more to talk about.
6: Thank you, sir. Real pleasure as always, and we can't wait to have you come and join us.
1: All right, if you are as excited as I am, okay, even if you're half as excited as I am about this, you probably want to know how to get tickets because they're about to go on sale. So here's how this is going to work. For those of you who want to know, O2 customers in Britain, and and there are no O2 customers here in the United States as far as we know. If if, if if there's a way, tell me. Uh, you are going to have a pre-sale for 48 hours starting Wednesday the 27th at 10 a.m., GMT. If you have registered via ArkhamAsylum.com, you'll get a 24 hour pre sale access beginning Thursday the 28th at 10 a.m. GMT. And finally, General is on sale Friday the 29th at 10 a.m. GMT. So the key dates O2 customers on the 27th at 10 a.m. GMT. If you pre registered, starting on the 28th for 24 hours. And then everybody has added starting on the 29th and, uh, you know, just so you know, syncing everything up so that you get your London trip figured out, um, you know, prob- probably worth it to at least go register, if not uh, to, f- to find a way to become an O2 customer. So there you go. Uh, hey, uh, speaking of tickets and being on sale and speaking of the department, Hamish Jenkinson who is one of Johnny's partners over at the immersive agency, the department uh, is going to be one of our speakers at the next stage come this January. Uh, that's going to be in Pasadena, January 7th, 8th and 9th. This is shaping up to be a real banger. I'm going to talk about some more of the folks we have at the end, but uh, keep an eye open for that experience. The next stage.com. We have 70 badges on sale to the general public And if you go to experience, the next stage.com, you can find out how to do that. There, uh, it is a much simplified process. Now the code is up and visible. Uh, if you are someone who had a badge to the 2020 here, uh, summit and festival, and you're wondering, hey, where's my discount code? You said you were going to give me a discount code. You should have it by now. Uh, it should be in your uh, check your spam filter, because we mailed that out a long time ago. Uh, and there are still a lot of folks who haven't taken advantage of that. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Gmail. Not not always our friends, uh, as we find out here <laughs> every day. All right. <laughs>
7: Hi, this is Patrick McLean the Chicago curator with no proscenium each week we publish our review rundown and gather the review crew for a podcast where we check in with what they're buzzing about but it is here and only here where we reveal the pick of the week this week the pick of the week is brought to us by
0: hi Laura Hess no pros arts editor
7: hey Laura what pick do you have for us today
0: I am so delighted to present the pick of the week this week, which is The Keeper and the Fungus Among Us. This is by Headlock Escape Rooms.
7: And this is a remote online Zoom experience, correct?
0: Yes, exactly. So this is, um, so Headlock Escape Rooms is based in the UK, just something to note in terms of time zones. Um, And yes, this is done remotely over Zoom. It is an absolutely delightful escape room experience for up to six players. It is interactive puppets accompanied by original music and songs. There are a plethora of fungal puns, and it is such a delight. There are, for for puzzle enthusiasts, I think it's going to scratch that itch, For people that are less immersed or experienced on the puzzle side, it is so delightful, this particular story, and these characters, and again, the original songs are such a charming, thoroughly delightful experience that if you're really kind of just there for that ride, it is wonderful. So it really, I think meets the needs of so many different types of audiences. And again, if you are not laughing your way through this, um, I just want to come hold your hand.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's that's great for sure. And I, I'm going to hit you with a question really quick. Is this all ages appropriate because it has puppets?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I I don't know if they have any sort of age recommendation. But I think this is, I do think that, like, much smaller kids would probably be fatigued by the, the puzzles. The puzzles can get a little, um, yeah, I think those can just be, you know, kind of involved. I would say, you know, anywhere from, like, 12 on up, uh, depending upon how, you know, invested or focused your kiddo might be. Um, but, yeah, this is also, I mean, for adults, our team was all adults, and we just laughed our way through it.
7: Well, fantastic. I think that's a really cool experience you're sharing with us.
0: It's so charming. Get tickets, book book right now.
7: And don't forget, you can find the review rundown at noprescenium.com and this week's Review Crew podcast, just one stop back in your podcast feed.
1: We've reached that part of the show where we like to check in with our friends from around the immersiverse. This week, it's folks from Immerse. That would be Abby Sun, the editor of Immerse, which you can find at immerse.news. They're a project of the MIT Open Doc Lab and Dot Connector Studio, and one of the few publications that covers this space uh, as this space. So uh, our colleagues. And we're so grateful to have them here. Abby, hello.
4: Hi, Noah. It's a pleasure to be here. And as you said, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with with all of you at NoPro. This is can sometimes be a lonely publishing space, oh. and it's always nice to have friends.
1: <laughs> Seriously. Uh, lonely, but lonely, and we've been all been doing it for a while. Y'all have your fifth anniversary issue coming up. Uh, in fact, I think what the fifth anniversary is the, the week that we're recording this and dropping this, right?
4: Yeah, it's a bit surprising, I think, to all of us that we've made it for five years. But I think it also speaks to how these this space, this conversation has been developing. So yes, this is the fifth anniversary issue. Uh, it is called Making the Metaverse. And we are really thinking about the metaverse as a term critically, uh, grouping together things, not only including AR, VR, MR, are all of the technologies, digital world building, synthetic humans, the NFT space, and everything that's happening there right now, um, but also thinking infrastructurally about what this term, bundling the term, what it means for makers who are working in this space. And I should add that Immerse, our specialty, is in nonfiction storytelling. So while we are interested in things like immersive theater and uh, fictional uses, Of virtual production, things like that. We're really interested in what I like to call the indexical relationship to reality.
1: That's often one of the most compelling use cases, particularly when it comes to all the XR material, is just the ability to transport folks into a place that they wouldn't otherwise be able to go and spend time with the people for whom that's the
4: world. Yeah, um I mean that's the beauty, but I think that's also kind of the dangerous and potentially exploitative potential as well of immersive media. And I think that the way that immersive qualities have been used, um, I mean, for instance, we know uh, when it comes to fiction films, the immersive qualities of sound have long been used to establish place, to establish the ability to transport to a place that's very far away and may not be real. Right. Um, When it comes to games, for instance, when it comes to reproducing flora and fauna and how the leaves on trees move, a lot of this is now being produced by studios, scanning, LIDAR, you know, photogrammetry, all of these technologies. Um, And I think we are really interested in how the real gets translated and what that means.
1: So as, as you look out and and maybe even talk a bit about this fifth anniversary issue, what are some of the big themes that are standing out to you in terms of, you know, what's controversial or in crisis or emerging and everyone's trying to figure out what do we really do with this, with this concept of the metaverse? Because people love to throw it Mm -hmm. around it's so hot right now. Uh, it's like Hansel. Uh, but, uh, sorry, I had a Zoolander joke. I, I can't help it. Uh, but the, uh, it, it, it kind of like immersive itself, it's starting to take on that hollowness. And I think those of us who have known the term for a very long time know that it doesn't have to be hollow. Um, so yeah, what's, 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 the immersed take on this this uh, era of excitement around the concept
4: yeah I think that our take is a lot like our contributors pretty multivocal and um, disparate while remaining tethered To the actual lived experience of people around the world, the current real physical world that we occupy. And what I mean by that um, is that I think a lot of the platforms, the distribution systems, the technologies are not being developed specifically for use in nonfiction storytelling, whether that is in the journalistic space or in the documentary film space or in the art world space. And what I mean by, and this is not um, like all things, as you just mentioned, this is not a new conversation in any way. I think um, kind of VR um, pioneers like Noni de la Peña have talked before about how she has had to distribute her projects through Steam, for instance. And Steam's um, kind of reporting and uh, commenting and rating features kind of cause the potential for trolls and for malicious Uh, interactions with projects that might be about um, people who are very far from us, but real-life people, in this case, who are being used in these projects, um, whose stories are being told in these projects. So for us, for this issue, we have quite a few pieces coming up that are about the metaverse as it's currently being commercialized, being valued, being utilized in ways that are for profit, but especially within the gaming space. What happens when it's a space like Fortnite that's being used for more nonfiction performances or history lessons or walkthroughs? But this is a space in Fortnite that is designed for violence and violence Mm. in gaming, for instance. we also have an interview with Liz Rosenthal and Michelle Weyak, the curators of Venice VR expanded on, and I know you've covered this before on this podcast, but on the um, VR chat world portion of the VR Venice expanded exhibit. But what I found really interesting was that there was a separate section created for the VR chat worlds because they were operating in a different economy and kind of, um, exhibition space, circulation space, than the really enclosed world of film festivals that value premieres. But at the same time, there was an official selection in competition that was itself a VR chat world. So why do we draw these lines? And how does it get conveyed to the general public? Those are the things that we are very interested in.
1: Now, you're not just doing a fifth anniversary issue, but you're taking the opportunity of the fifth anniversary to expand Immerse's coverage. So uh, tell us a little bit about the initiatives that are launching right now.
4: Yeah. So as of the week of recording, we have just launched one of our two new strands. Uh, the first one being written by the film curator, writer, interviewer, and also podcast host, Pamela Cohen. And she's doing basically just traditional journalism, beat reporting on things that are happening within the space, but specifically how they are affecting documentary filmmakers and artists who are making immersive work. And we're talking way beyond kind of projects that get featured at film festivals at this point. We're interested in artists who have opened their own virtual galleries and crypto voxels with Decentraland, things like that, and really kind of seeing how it is then that their work flows through these spaces. The next piece will be on um, dying in the metaverse and the death of projects, the death of virtual avatars, things like that. Pamela is a wonderful, inquisitive writer. We're thrilled to have her on board. And then we have a second beat, which is called the Virtual Production Bulletin that's being written by MIT Open Doc Lab graduate researcher Shushti Kamat. Uh, And she's doing biweekly interviews with people who are really pioneers, um, both in developing and implementing virtual production in different spaces, everything from education to fiction films to um, interviews, all, all the things in between.
1: What's the cadence going to be on, on the beat reporting? Is that, cause like, you know, is it going to be a weekly column or Mm. like, you know, a couple of times a week? How's the flow there?
4: Yeah. So this will also be bi-weekly, same as our virtual Mm, production beat. Yeah. We think that, I mean, we, this is a conversation that we do have internally. Um, I'm really thrilled and thankful to be working with a brilliant team of editors, other editors at Immerse, and that's our editorial collective consisting of the co-founders of the publication. This includes Ingrid Kopp and Jessica Clark and Sarah Wallison. Um, and for us, biweekly feels like enough time to sort of dig into things at a greater depth than we usually do ourselves, but also kind of frequent enough to stay at least, you know, treading head above water, so to speak, uh, as this world is moving at warp speed.
1: Now, you've also been doing some panels and events on the festival circuit. So uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about that.
4: Yeah, so one of the important things about Immerse for us and i think this is true also of you no know, pro but also of immersive work in general the work doesn't stop with the project itself we talk about onboarding and offboarding right when it comes to projects and about kind of the wrap around content everything that can happen around the pieces that are being published within the magazine uh and immerse actually launched five years ago with a get together. It wasn't just um this thing that we are publishing on Medium. So similar to that, we are doing a series of events with film festivals that we think really have a stake, not only in exhibiting and presenting this work, but also in developing new immersive nonfiction projects so at venice vr expanded we did a world hop within the vr chat worlds featuring some of the creators of the worlds presenting on what they had done and all of the you know especially for the worlds that are persistent and where one can interact with it, kind of demonstrating all of the capabilities. That was extraordinarily fun. And I think for us, really introduced us to more of a gaming world. And some of the other editors have continued to attend weekly VR chat world hops after that. And then just last week, October 14th, we did two panels with Double Exposures Symposium. This is an investigative journalism film festival held in D.C., hosted by Georgetown University. And this was a really interesting space for us because I think that um, places like Frontline, I mean, investigative journalism has long been a place where 360 video, VR projects, AR projects have taken a foothold. Um, But for us, we think that when it comes to more of a journalism space, the world metaverse can feel really icky right now. It can feel Mm. really hollow and people react really poorly to it. And I do, too, personally, because it seems to be, you know, full of hype. It seems to be only connected to large corporations and platforms. But I think that we can also use the term to be critical about certain things. While also seeing, you know, how it makes sense for, for artists and filmmakers who are more into world building and connecting with actual live people as well.
1: One, one of the funny things about the prevalence of the term again, aside from the fact that it's like, oh, it, it's like it was the other flavor of, you know, cyberspace, you know, back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, is it Coke or is it Pepsi, right? You know, it's like cyberspace, metaverse. What are we going to call it? Oh, let's call it cyberspace, right? Because Gibson got there first, mm-hmm. but like. You know, when Stevenson wrote Snow Crash, in so many ways, like it was, it was the metaverse was a satire of mall culture and the Mm -hmm. idea that we were going to build this amazing thing. And then what we were going to do, we were going to turn into a freaking mall. Uh, And it's, You know, he's he's a satirist as much as he's anything. Uh, He's he's deeply pessimistic about humanity in some ways, but has this little bit of usually this tiny bit of hope somewhere in in all right. Kind of a bit of a people are terrible, but a person can be, you know, good um, vibe. And so just to watch it get re-embraced on the one hand, like I'm like, oh, yeah, like I know what a metaverse should be. On the other hand, I'm like, but what are we really doing this? you know are we really going there with this one and and it looks like we are so it's uh it's, it's fascinating from like a linguistic ontological standpoint for me uh but also there's there is some potential here for for creativity and connection uh if things are handled a bit better than they were before you know here's a chance to do the next version of the web maybe we can get it right this time i don't, I don't know
4: if we you yeah. well I think that commerce has a way of, you know, taking terms that are sat- satire from sci-fi and turning it into something aspirational. If we just look at the names of Soylent, for instance, or Palantir, oh God, right? when they
1: did that. These yeah. Are,
4: yeah, exactly. So I think that... Uh, on the one hand, you know, my personal feelings are of deep skepticism and of wanting to avoid this at all costs. But on the other hand, we do live in a world that is totally impacted by platform capitalism, or whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, But it is true that you know, even outside of governmental forces, it is these large multinational corporations that are very obscurest in how they make decisions and um, hold and enforce policy that have huge impacts on all of us. And for me, it's not even about reclaiming the term because, on the, I mean, at one point, the term is out of our hands. It is perhaps more accurate to call. Um, maybe what it is that would be uh, de- decentralized, distributed, democratized, egalitarian, you know, of, of avoiding the excesses of of late stage capitalism. Maybe it's more accurate to call it Web 3.0 or Web Oxar or, you know, there are all of these other terms. But I do think that at some point we have to we can't just run away from it forever. I don't know. What do you think?
1: So if you want to check out my answer to Abby's question there and about another 10 minutes of us uh, you know, having a conversation about the metaverse and riffing back and forth, uh, you're going to need to check out the Patreon bonus episode that is going to be dropping in a little bit later uh, because I want to keep the show at about the normal time. So that's where that is. And now on to the very end of the interview. Abby, this was great <laughs> we'll We'll do this again sometime Yes this soon. is
4: fantastic Thank you uh,
1: uh for folks uh who wanna who wanna connect uh again just give them give them the give them the core details of how to find Immerse.
4: Yes. You can find us at immerse.news. That will take you to our publication. We are also on Twitter and on LinkedIn, believe it or not. These are the two social media handles that we have. And you can find us at immerse now. That's N-O-W, immerse now.
1: All right. Abby, thanks for being on the show this week.
4: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Noah.
1: If you want to hear the rest of that interview, you should go to patreon.com slash no and become a backer. Just like our latest backers, Leah Davis. Hey, wait, Leah, you write for us. Uh, and Tanya Leal Soto, who is an amazing producer. Uh, and I feel really honored to have two such incredible people throwing, uh, money in the hat here. Uh, Th- this is this is how we do it uh this this supports my uh weird lifestyle uh by which i mean paying rent to people for housing that's weird why do we do it like that um patreon.com no proscinium we are trying to get up to 400 backers this um this year and um yeah, maybe it's my birthday this weekend so maybe it's all i want maybe all i want is to know that i can keep making this show and all we do for you see there you go I'm really good at guilt trips. I should do it more often. Okay. We've got more show to come. We knew. It's true. It's also like midnight when I'm recording this, so you get punchy you Noah know, in the middle of the show. It never happens. Wee. <laughs> now is immersive creator ross typograph best known for eight players who also works in the realm of activations having recently done work with the latest Candyman movie ross thanks for being on the show today
5: thank you for having me thank you for having this show and having it exist period i appreciate it a lot
1: oh thank you um you've done some work on Candyman of late but that's not what we're here to talk about because you've got some ticketed shows uh active in one major American city right now and soon to be in another. So what do you got? What do you got cooking for us right now?
5: This is true. So right now we have uh, so Sleepy Hollow is the name of the show. It used to be Sleepy Hollow Bar, but I think for marketing reasons they had to change it. That's fine. But Sleepy Hollow, it's I mean, it's this ridiculous comedy that is now, as you mentioned, running in Chicago. So it's in Chicago. People can get tickets now. It's been there since September 15. There are 18 shows a week, which is a lot. So it's two casts, and that's over 1,000 audience members a week, the majority of which are sold out, which is beautiful. But for the remaining show times, I'm aware, there's pretty much like an average of 10 or so tickets remaining. So, I mean, period. It's very funny. It's like... (laughs) I know I'm biased but the first six performances that I sat in on with live audiences genuinely a lot of laughing a lot of shock and it's also kind of a spoof of immersive theater which I had to do which we can talk about and uh you know for fans of Sleepy Hollow what it does is it's it's leaning into the IP of both the comedy horror of the movie and the light thrills and comedy of the short story by Washington Irving so it's it's fun. It's basically taking on that whole universe. I wrote it. I created it. uh, Fever bought it and Fever is now producing it and ticketing it. So we just put it up in Chicago and it is now going to open also in Washington, DC on November 18. My first time working with them, but it's very cool to do, uh, like we were just talking about, one of those drinking focused immersive experiences. It's very unusual.
1: So what are people going to find if they're dropping into Chicago or for the DC one, what, what do they find uh, in Sleepy Hollow?
5: What's happening is, what we've taken from the original story of Sleepy Hollow is everything that you know from that world is happening. There is a horseman, there is an Ichabod Crane, there is a Van Tassel's family, there are the various supporting characters who you remember from the IP. However, we are now doing a delightful reimagining, if you will, going, okay, so that that stuff was happening in town. What if there were other things that were going on in this village? What if something else was happening at the exact same time that this horseman was going around, murdering people, terrifying the town? So what I did was I invented a bar. So basically the citizens of Sleepy Hollow, you know, the peasants, all the house servants have banded together and said, okay, there is this horrific thing going on. There's this massacre happening in town. Everyone's terrified blood is being strewn, heads are rolling, everything you expect. Why don't we, house servants, band together to try and make people happy again? It's a very simple story of a bunch of people in a tavern in the town of Sleepy Hollow who are trying to raise some spirits, literally and literally, both in the ghost sense and the drink sense. So what you walk in and you are at this tavern. You're at this bar in the middle of... The Sleepy Hollow that you know. It's 1799. It's around Halloween time, just for fun. The horsemen, you know, there's been about three murders already in town, and you are coming in contact with the staff at that location. So what we're doing is the whole story unfolds in real time. It's 90 minutes of you becoming involved and understanding all of the characters at this Sleepy Hollow bar, their relationship to each other. So, you know, you have some people who are not well off, who are making this tavern out of love, and they're very happy the audience is here. It's opening night in the story. So every, every showtime the audience goes to, it's opening night of this tavern in the middle of Sleepy Hollow while the murders are happening. So everyone is stressed but they're also delighted they're stressed because they don't know if they're going to die tonight because there have been three murders in town but they're delighted because you the audience have come to see their hard work putting up the bar so you meet I think a total of six six to seven lead or supporting characters who either had a hand in making the bar or have a hand in trying to destroy it out of anger or jealousy and you see why when you're there And so what happens is you walk in, you meet these people, you're clearly in the location of the bar. Everything looks like a bar, feels like a bar, but it's also covered in ivy. It's gothic. It smells wonderful. And there is an 80s punk rock soundtrack blaring, which is a controversial choice, but I had a lot of fun justifying that creatively because it's like, you know what? These people are punk rock. They know that they're not the richest people in town. They are trying their hardest to make something crazy and delightful for the citizens of the town and the tourists. Why wouldn't they have excellent taste? So fortunately the music choice has paid off because when I'm sitting in on the performances, I can see that people are not caring that there's music from the eighties, such as Susie and the Banshees and the cure like blasting. They just care that there is this Gothic IP that they're having fun with and that there's music from like the British new wave era that somehow also fits into that same goth mentality that I loved. Um, so they, like, I, I tried to put myself into the mindset of an audience member, like, okay, I love Sleepy Hollow, I love Tim Burton, that means I probably also love really good, like, fucking, like, punk, <laughs> like, synth music from, like, female vocalists, and just, like, unusual instruments, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're, you're not, I went not, with that.
1: Like that, I know. That's, that's what nineties goth clubs were. It was exactly. just Exactly. It was uh it was people uh raiding their closets from their from Beetlejuice uh times when they were kids and yes. uh listening to Susie and the Banshees. I know because dressing up in the, the you
5: know, you have I like the, the eye makeup, you, you wear your oh, black yeah. trench coat. Yeah, yeah. So well, luckily on, you know,
1: it's it's nothing it's 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 the crow and Susie, Susie and that's oh it. oh my you
5: know? god. Yeah, the is a big one. So I'm happy that people are not trying to shut it down because there is an anachronism happening. People are just enjoying the fact that there's 80s music in a 1700s world. And then by the end of it, a lot of people die. So you're basically smack dab in the middle of the whole staff going crazy from uh, basically one of them has a connection to the horseman and it's a mystery. And the audience is getting involved in their conflicts, wondering if the horseman's going to show up, drinking three drinks at really specific intervals as the story picks up and The one character who seems to be connected to the Horseman, he or she or they are, uh, you know, very gradually revealing their evilness. And there's three different locations that the audience is investigating as they're becoming friends with these cast members. So there's moments where the audience can roam and then there's very strict moments where the audience is seated and they are watching a traditional show. And then they're back to roaming. So it's, it's cool that we were able to work out like a mathematical structure of like when people are sitting, when people are standing, what they're doing when they're standing and finding the pacing of that, which was really hard actually during rehearsals. But then we found it on like the second to last day and then people came and had a ball. So it's going well. I'm glad it's selling and it's in Chicago. Tickets are at feverup.com, which is Fever's site. And it'll be opening soon in DC for all you Washington people. I hope you have fun.
1: All right, that's Ross. my
5: promotion moment, Noah. For that,
1: it <laughs> was well, good, Ross. I'm sure people are going to have a blast, and uh, looking forward to it spreading to even more uh, cities. Sounds like it's going to be maybe even a bit of a perennial thing. So,
5: I hope so. And it maybe there'll be we'll see more drinking experiences that are more theatrical. I, I, I was inspired by things like like in Boston, you had like the donkey show, which I'm sure you know of is now an immersive show running at, um, ART Oberon near Harvard in Boston. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, like the, it's, it's a midsummer night's dream where you are drinking and dancing and there's a play happening around you. That is where I looked. I also thought of like Rocky horror picture show, which obviously is a movie and then a stage show, but it's like, it's not you know an immersive drinking experience but there's a feeling a bit of like being trapped in this location with all these insane people and it's clearly r-rated so alcohol could be flowing that's 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 where my mind went to
1: everyone should go check who are in chicago or dc should check out the sleepy hollow experience it looks like uh, chicago will probably extend uh and dc is kicking off just before thanksgiving so congratulations congratulations to us and uh, i'm sure there'll be more soon
5: Thank you. I hope everyone comes and yeah, we'll do a part two at some point about activations and I will bore your ear off.
1: And we have now reached the end of the show. And yes, as I mentioned, at the beginning of the show, there was, there's actually a lot more of that interview with Ross. Uh, We riffed Mightily on the whole concept of immersive drinking shows. Uh, he talked about his experiences working with Fever uh, so far. Uh, and uh, there's just, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. I think there's like 15 or 20 minutes worth of conversation there. So uh, that is also in the bonus feed. And like I mentioned at the start of the show, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll drop it into, you know, the normal feed, you know. Probably, maybe a little bit late next week. It depends on how uh, how vacating my vacation is, uh, which uh, I'm actually hoping is really vacating because the last three times I've tried to take a vacation, horrible things have happened. I'm, I, I wish I was kidding. Uh, it's been really bad. So, uh, fingers crossed, everybody. Knock on wood. Uh, shooting stars. Whatever. Uh, I, I can't have four in a row go bad. Uh, I, I will not be able to handle it. Anyway. Uh, Again, it's uh, midnight realness here uh, at the NoPro Studios, and I'm not editing any of this because it's the last day before I leave for break, Uh, and we are in the middle of a whole lot of stuff. So, uh, the big thing is uh, the next stage. You know, uh, it's the big industry summit that we do, and we've now announced we're also doing our micro festival. Uh, it's all coming together. It's all uh, it's all becoming exactly what we want it to be. Uh, it's all a, a giant pain in my tuchus. Uh, but the thing that I'm really glad uh, to be able to to talk to you about is uh, we just announced uh, five more speakers, uh, and uh, you'll be seeing that on the social media feed this Friday. We announced it in our uh, in our newsletter uh, that went out on thursday um th- i'm excited about all these folks uh because they're they're pretty nifty some folks have you know attended before uh some folks uh you know have worked with us um we kick it off though with someone who has two people who've spoken with us before first off is uh, melinda lau who is the co-creator of whisper lodge um that was a little ASMR helicopter going overhead, thanks to the LAPD. Uh, so Melinda Lau, co-creator of Whisper Lodge. Uh, during pandemic, Melinda moved back to Singapore. Uh, and uh, she, her career is now flourishing over there. She's working with a company over there that is uh, doing like micro-experiences, and they're getting into this world. And she's going to come and talk to all of us about... Uh, the opportunities for growth in the field uh, in not just Singapore but around Southeast Asia. Uh, this is a, a big look at things from an international perspective and from coming from someone who not only has that perspective, but has deep deep knowledge of the immersive creative community and the business of immersive here in the United States. You know, Melinda was a story lead at museum of ice cream. She's worked with refinery 29 done work with Marriott hotel group. And as we all know, created, well, I hope we all know uh, created this incredible indie experience in the form of whisper lodge. So uh, we also, uh, returning uh, to our, our rotation. Uh, returning from a certain point of view, uh, I, I have technically have to say. Uh, Celia Pierce, uh, who's a professor of game design at Northeastern University in Boston. Celia is also the co-founder of Indycade and co-founder and co-executive director of Playable Theater. Uh, the talk she's going to give uh, is really getting us excited. Uh, it's all about uh, uh, just finding ways to help people Onboard into experiences uh, That are smoother And uh, she's bringing uh, Game design knowledge And a lot of experience in uh, Live action role play And in the whole playable theater movement They have going on Uh, to that. We also have uh, Meg Cunningham joining us from England. Meg's been doing work with Boomtown Fair and the the legitimate Peaky Blinders Festival, uh, amongst other pieces. Uh, Jessica Crean, who's the uh, creator of the plays uh, Chaos Theory and Know Myself, uh, 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 Thyself, sorry, Know Thyself, reading and i'm doing it wrong uh jessica's going to be giving a talk uh entitled evolution or escapism finding yourself through play got a real play uh theme going on here and no pro's own ali morata who uh you know is a is an immersive creator in her own right uh She's going to be giving a talk about uh, focusing on the cognitive science behind two of the greatest tools in immersive work surprise and the feeling of specialness. You've also heard Ali here on the show. There's more programming in our back pocket, but because I'm going on vacation, you'll hear about it in November. Uh, that includes more material in the festival. Uh, we, we just locked down a couple of things. I'm, I'm really happy we locked down. Um, Getting to do the thing you wanted to do before the pandemic hit, right? Like the thing you had all set up, and then knowing that you're gonna probably get to do it, that's a good feeling. The existential dread in trying to make sure it actually happens, that that's entirely else. But you know what helps make it happen? When well, we sell badges, that's right. Three-day on-site badges, as I mentioned before, are on sale. If you go to experiencethenextstage.com, or immersiveexperience.org. You will find the ticketing uh, information there Um, today. On Friday, uh, there will be a direct link and the code will be a direct link to the Eventbrite. And, uh, the, the drop code will be there published for everyone to see. Uh, we've emailed it to a lot of folks and, uh, I'm, I, I'm worried that people have gotten it. A good number of people have gotten the code and not bought tickets. Uh, enough people have the code that we could have a sellout, like snap of the fingers sellout, uh, including their discount codes. And it just doesn't seem to be going in. I know people are, are maybe hedging their bets and everything, but, uh, we don't sell the tickets. We don't get to do the thing. Simple as that. Well, why don't you just make them cheaper? If We don't sell the tickets at the price. We have them. We don't get to do the thing. Uh, we worked the math. <laughs> We're not going to be making a whole lot of money on this. And you go, my God, the, the tickets are $650. How can you not be making a whole lot of money on this? Because these events are expensive, particularly when you don't do them for, you know, tons and tons of people. Again, midnight realness, everybody. Uh, this is, let me make something special here for you let me let me make this special thing for you experience the next stage.com the badges are available now uh remember if you've got a streaming plus uh, you've got your badge reserved until uh like november 3rd i want to say that's when the next drop happens there are only 200 Badges on sale for this thing, all total. Okay, enough. If I say badge one more time, I'm going to scream. I won't say it. I won't scream. All right, we're going to get right to the credits because my computer just crashed because uh, it's midnight and it has almost no memory left. It wants to go on vacation too. The sustaining backers of No Persidium are Ari Hurston, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, David Bassick, Lonnie Hands-On, Paul Farnell, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all. You keep me going. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the executive editor of No Pro. And this program is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly, Noah Nelson. I gotta go because the computer's gonna run out of memory. Seriously, I will see you in November. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.